Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 11 for the second half of November 2011. The topic I'm going to talk about today is about several of the dust and rock claims related to the Apollo moon hoax. There are going to be several claims, and after each of them, I'm going to go over why they're wrong. The first of the dust and rock claims is short. There shouldn't be any lunar dust because the moon simply lacks wind and water to create it. I think the theme for the dust claims is that your experience on Earth does not prepare you for what to expect on the moon, because that's the case here, and that's also going to be the case for pretty much all of the others. The material on the surface of the moon is mainly the result of billions of years of micrometeorite impacts into larger rocks on the lunar surface. We call this material, this lunar dust, regolith, as opposed to soil, because the latter term is used in geology to indicate more of a biological or organic origin. Regolith should technically be used to describe the surface material on all planetary and lunar surfaces except for Earth. The process of creating regolith is usually referred to as gardening because surface material is hit by these extraplanetary or extralunar material these micrometeorites, and it will be broken up, and it will tend to move a little bit. The material underneath it can then be hit. This, in general, creates a process of slow overturn where the upper few meters will be broken up, and then you'll hit more competent rock below. However, the depth of the regolith can change significantly over the surface of the moon. It's also not just created by the micro-meteorite impacts, but also by larger impact events. A one-kilometer diameter crater will produce a layer of ejecta that, after about a billion years or so, will become generally indistinguishable from the surrounding regolith, except for maybe a slight topographic difference, like a ramp as you approach the crater rim. These larger impacts are rarer, but they do create significantly more future regolith material than the micrometeorite bombardment does in one go. Also, to a lesser extent, cosmic rays and solar wind will help to generate the regolith, as will tidal forces and a little bit of seismic activity, but those are very minor components compared with the actual influx of meteoritic material and the micrometeorites fracturing and breaking off the little pieces of material that will eventually become the lunar regolith. The next claim is that the boot prints and rover tracks appear to hold their shape very well, and that they're actually darker than the regular lunar material, so they must have been made in material that's wet. Since we all know that there's no water on the moon, they couldn't have been made on the moon and must have been made on Earth, proof that there was a conspiracy. There's no moisture on the moon. Really, if there's no moisture on the moon, then how come you can see a footprint perfectly? Because when you step in the desert where there's no moisture on the sand, all you see is a circle. But in the, in the photographs of the, of the footprint on the moon, you see an absolute impression of the uh, footprint indicating that there is moisture in that soil, which means they're not on the moon. You don't have – see, this is the problem. This is the problem with this kind of investigation and your, you know, your in-quote common sense. If you were to take flour – 
and very, very, Flour very has good. moisture in it. Wait, I've heard wait, the same wait, wait. Let, it, let, let, him, let him finish. Go ahead, Kevin. Very, very fine powdered substance, and you step on it with no moisture in it at all. It's going to make a footprint. Flour has moisture in it. You can feel it when you put your hand in it. Of course, flour has moisture in it on, on Earth. But, you know, you can take, you can take other substances that don't have moisture in them, and you can still make a footprint. I mean, this, this is Like what? Problem. Give me an example. This is the problem with this kind I mean, look, of... Uh, give me an example. Wait, wait. Hold on. I don't, I, the one thing I can't have you guys talking over right. each other, so finish, Kevin, and then go ahead, Bart. But finish up, Kevin. You can take fine rock dust and do it. Yeah, but you're doing that on Earth where there's moisture everywhere. The moon has never had moisture on it except it's the North South Pole. You see, that's like trying to create a vacuum. I've never been in a vacuum of you, and I've never been on any place on Earth that doesn't have moisture in it except the desert and the sand. I'm not going to bog down with you in in arguments about flour and dust and moisture. You used an argument about moisture in a camera, and I told you how how that wouldn't work, how it would never happen because we're in a vacuum, and then you start on this other area. Now, before I actually address the claim... This is a very good example from which to take a moment to point out debate tactics. This coast-to-coast interview, conducted by Ian Punnett, was recorded on March 20th, 2009, where the hoax proponent was Bart Cybrell, and the arguer was a caller named Kevin, who was calling into the program. In it, Kevin was answering Bart about the question of why didn't camera lenses fog up on the moon when they went from hot to cold. I addressed that in episode 5. As the caller correctly pointed out, it's because there's no moisture. Bart interrupted his answer, changed claims, and then went into the footprint claim, which I'll address in a moment. He said that there's no moisture in sand, and so you don't get a footprint. The caller then tried to explain that you get footprints in dry material, but Bart constantly interrupted with the name gotcha points before actually admitting that everything on Earth has moisture in it, and so his own example of sand isn't actually valid. He then changes the subject again before the caller could answer fully and goes on to creating vacuums in what seems like another gotcha point, even though it's not really related to the initial question. What's very refreshing is that the caller actually knew about this tactic and pointed it out. It's known formally as moving the goalpost, and more informally among skeptics, especially those who discuss young earth creationism quite a bit, as a Gish gallop. This was named after a famous creationist, Dwayne Gish, who during debates would jump from topic to topic to topic to topic to topic without ever actually giving his opponent any opportunity to answer, or acknowledging when that answer may have been given, very rarely, in between one of his gallops. Anyway, about the claim. Again, your experience on Earth does not prepare you for what to expect on the moon. On Earth, if we try to think of something dry that we can walk in, we'll most probably think of sand on a desert or high up on a beach, just like Bart used. And if you try to make a footprint in dry sand, or almost very dry sand, it doesn't hold. If you pour water onto the sand, or if a big wave comes up and the sand will get darker in color. This is also usually the case for soil. It gets darker if it gets wet. You also know that as you walk on the beach where the waves wash up and the sand is wet, you can get the sand to hold a footprint, or a castle. 
until the wave washes it away, or a bully. That's your common experience, and so that's apparently what the hoax proponents think should be the case on the moon. But that analogy doesn't hold. On Earth, sand is generally made of fairly smooth grains that roll around each other. They're smooth because they've been made by water and wind erosion that breaks tiny pieces of rock off, rolls and tumbles them around, and rounds them off. They need a mechanical binding agent like water in order to hold a complex shape, like a footprint. Lunar regolith is made mostly by impact events, as I just discussed. There's no wind nor water on the moon, and so they don't experience nearly the same level of further mechanical erosion that takes place on Earth. This means that the lunar regolith is very angular. When it's compressed into a complicated shape, like a bootprint, the individual grains fit together like puzzle pieces, as opposed to like marbles, allowing them to retain their shape. The reason it appears darker is actually twofold. First, the shadows were very long during the Apollo missions because they were conducted close to lunar dawn in order to, in part, keep the temperatures down. Shadows make things appear darker, by definition. Second, the upper layers of the lunar regolith have been chemically weathered by cosmic rays which change their color. This is one of the reasons why old craters aren't surrounded by bright rays like some of the younger ones, like Tycho Crater. If you go down below this layer of regolith that's been weathered, the material is a different tone, or different shade of gray, or a different color. When the rover traveled and when the astronauts bounded around kicking up material, they exposed this darker layer. It's the exact same thing if you look at the rover tracks on Mars. The tracks expose darker material. The third claim is that there should be a bunch of lunar dust that was kicked up by the lunar module's descent engines that blinded the astronauts, making it impossible for them to land. This claim is followed up by the claim that's probably one of the most prevalent of the dust-based hoax ideas. In these enlargements, it looks as though the lunar module was simply placed there, not even one speck of moon dust on the landing pod. As a result, all subsequent flights had to have the same discrepancy, which was explained away by the effect of no atmosphere. And that's exactly what I'm going to do, explain it away because of the lack of atmosphere. This is yet another case where your common sense from your experience on Earth does not serve you well for what to expect on the moon. On Earth, if you fire a rocket engine towards the ground, you'll get a large cloud of debris. If you want to see this effect, take a small tray, pour some flour in it, and put it in a bathtub. Kids, get your parents' permission. Take a can of compressed air, put the little red straw in it, and aim the straw down towards the flour. Spray the air you'll see a large cloud of flour be kicked up. This is why you're doing it in the bathtub. Or do it outside. If you do this experiment, you'll see that the cloud of flour will linger in the air for quite some time. So, with your everyday experience, that would tell you that the lunar dust should act the same way. The difference is keyed to what I just said. The cloud of flour will linger in the air. The moon has no air to speak of. The only reason that dust is kicked up and suspended briefly around the descent module is that the engine exhaust is creating a temporary atmosphere. 
As soon as the engines were cut off, the temporary atmosphere went away, and the dust settled at the speed of freefall in lunar gravity. The lander was still descending, but it was also not just descending purely straight down. It had a horizontal component as well. So, these combined effects, the dust settling very quickly, and it settling where the lander would have been, rather than where the lander ended up due to the horizontal motion, are why we actually would not expect there to be lunar material on top of the lander's footpads. Now we're going to move from dust to rocks. The first set of rock claims goes from the very basic conspiracy to what a normal person would likely consider to be paranoid delusions. First, there's the idea that geologists have never seen lunar rocks before, so they wouldn't know a genuine one from an ordinary earth rock, or an earth rock that had somehow been fabricated or altered in some way. Stepping up the conspiracy rhetoric, and we have the claim that geologists are all trained in government-funded and government-controlled universities. If the government wanted to keep the true nature of the lunar sample secret, it could easily control what geologists know and learn. The third claim is the paranoid one. The U.S. government threatens any geologist with terrible consequences if he or she should reveal that the samples he or she obtains from NASA are not actual factual lunar surface samples. I can't help you if you believe the last point. If you do, you might as well turn off this podcast now, because I'm sure you'll believe I'm on the take. After all, I did just buy a $400 chocolate tempering machine, but it was on sale because it was refurbished. Anyway, uh, people are going to like me this winter solstice. If you've heard either of the first two claims, the claim basically boils down to geologists don't know what they're doing. To put it bluntly, this isn't only an insult to geologists, but it's an insult really to all of science and the basic way that science is done. Physical sciences like geology are done based on observation and experimentation. For example, a geologist will go to the Rocky Mountains, chip off a piece of rock, and study it. They'll go to a volcano, chip off a piece of rock, and study it. They'll go to a riverbed, chip off a piece of rock, and study it. It doesn't really matter what the government tells them they're supposed to find. They study it and reach their own conclusions. They'll look at the differences. They'll try to figure out why there are differences and how those differences came about, or why they're similar and how those similarities form the same way in such different types of rocks. From geologists having done this for literally hundreds of years, they've built up a pretty darn good idea of what's going on with Earth rocks. They can then apply that knowledge to hypothesize what they should expect from a surface that they've never sampled before, such as the Moon, or Mars, or some other planet or moon. They can also figure out what kind of environment rocks formed in, like if there was an atmosphere, and this is because of little teeny tiny bubbles of trapped air. That's how we know that we have about two dozen rocks that come from Mars in our meteorite samples. The hoax claim that geologists could simply be presented with a rock, 
told that it's from the moon and then go with it when it's really just an earth rock simply illustrates a profound lack of understanding of how science is done. There's also radiometric dating, but I'll get to that after the next claim, which is that we could have simply sent sample returns to get the moon rocks the way the Soviets did. Or, if you don't like that, behind door number two, there's the idea that the rocks were just collected from Antarctica. There are actually a few problems with both of these. The reason I put the two claims together is that the first problem deals with both, and that's the economy of scale. Apollo returned half a ton of moon rocks, or about 385 kilograms. At the moment, we have less than about 60 kilograms of meteorites that come from the moon, which is about 16% of the Apollo sample, while the Soviet sample return gave us about 270 grams. That's grams, not kilograms, or about 0.07%, as much material as the Apollo astronauts returned. So there's that. Lots of rocks versus a few rocks. Building on that, the second reason that we could not have used a sample return to get these samples instead of from Apollo astronauts is that the technology didn't exist then, doesn't exist now, to return half a ton of material from a planet. The Japanese probe Hayabusa returned about 1,500 tiny grains of material from an asteroid last year. The Soviets returned a bit over half a pound from the moon over several missions in the 1970s. The proposed Mars mission that's going to return samples that won't happen for at least a decade is talking about a few small rocks, nothing close to half a ton. The second problem with the collection from Antarctica has to do with what are called zap pits. Zap pits, which are impossible to say quickly, are tiny craters in the surfaces of rocks. These form from, again, micrometeorite impacts that aren't strong enough to destroy the rock, but they do chip off tiny pieces to create the lunar regolith. What they leave behind in the rocks are tiny craters called zap pits. Zap pits can only form if there are micrometeorite impacts. Those can only happen if there is no atmosphere. Even Mars' tiny atmosphere is enough to prevent the impacts that would form zap pits from reaching the surface. But they do form on the moon. Apollo and Luna sample returns all have zap pits. Meteorites from Antarctica don't. They don't because as a rock travels through Earth's atmosphere, the surface heats up to very high temperatures and a thin outer part of the rock melts. This forms what's called a fusion crust, basically melted rock, and it eliminates all of the zap pits from the surface. So again, the fact that the Apollo sample returns have zap pits and the Antarctic returns don't indicate that indeed... These were collected from the moon, by astronauts, and not by explorers to Antarctica. That's it for the main dust and rock claims that are part of the whole Apollo moon hoax conspiracy stuff. But there are some independent ways to tell that we did go to the moon that have to do with dust and rocks. I'm going to talk to you about two of those. The first has to do with ages. The oldest rocks dated on Earth are presently about 3.5 to 3.8 billion years old. We keep hoping that we'll find older ones, but 
So far, nothing. In contrast, the youngest age for the moon rocks returned is about 3.2 billion years. Most, however, are around 3.8 to 4.5 billion years old. I'll repeat that. We have a plethora of moon rocks returned by Apollo, for reasons that I discussed in the last claim, that date to several hundred million years before the oldest Earth rock. You can't fake or manufacture a rock that gives this kind of radiometric age. The second independent way to tell that we went to the moon is to look at the Apollo 16 Grand Prix maneuver on the rover, so-called because they basically floored it to see how fast the rover could go and how well it performed. In the video, which I'll post to the show notes for this episode, you can see that the rover is moving and kicking up a bunch of dust. If this were recorded in an environment that had an atmosphere, like Earth, the dust would have had to have billowed out because it would have been supported by the air, and just the tiniest of air currents would have scattered the dust at least in some way. But I suppose a hoax proponent could argue that this was recorded in a vacuum chamber. If it were recorded on Earth, though, even if it were in a vacuum chamber, the dust would still behave differently from what we see in the video. In the video, the dust follows a perfect introductory physics ballistic arc. It goes up, slows down, comes to an apex, and then falls back down to the surface, accelerating as it goes. If you ever took introductory physics in high school or college, you may remember the basic equation for ballistic motion. In that equation is a term for gravity. So, you can actually follow the dust, do the math, and figure out the gravity field that the Grand Prix maneuver was filmed in. It comes out to the moon, not the Earth. This week's Q&A question comes from Peter L., who asks... How can the source body of a meteorite be determined if we have never been there to check the place out? For example, meteorites credited to Vesta before we got there, and the post that you did on the attempted tracing of the KT asteroid to some breakup hundreds of millions of years ago. It sounds like magic. Well, Peter, the magic of which you speak is the magic of science. In this case, it's the same type as needed to answer Jeff's question last time. Spectra. There's a saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. There's a less common saying that a spectrum is worth a thousand pictures. Spectra allow us to measure the exact amount of light from an object at a specific wavelength and to draw out many of those wavelengths. In introductory astronomy labs, we show this by using basic filters like red, green, and blue, and we look at common objects and we see how much red, green, and blue light is reflected in order to build up a very coarse spectrum. If you go to finer detail, say instead of using broad red, green, and blue filters that span several thousands of angstroms, you have filters that span maybe a few hundred, or a smaller color band. Over the visible light range, this gives you several dozen different measurements. Extend it beyond the visual, and you get even more. You can use more advanced ways to separate out the light instead of filters. For example, you can use prisms or gratings. If you want to know what a grating is, look at the back of a CD. 
The bottom line is that we measure how much light is coming in smaller and smaller wavelength ranges, and then we can build up more detailed spectrum for an object. When astronomers do this with asteroids, we see that asteroids fall into specific and distinct groups based entirely on their spectra, and that these groups are loosely correlated with where they are in the asteroid belt or elsewhere in the solar system. Asteroids that were found early on, and are big, are generally considered the archetypes for different classes. For example, Asteroid 2 Pallas is the archetype for B-type asteroids within the C group of asteroids. 3 Juno is the model for the S-type asteroids. 4 Vesta is the model for the V-type of asteroids. And I'll post a link that will talk to you about more of these asteroid types in the show notes. We have meteorites on Earth, and we can look at their spectra in order to figure out which asteroid type they match, if any. It's kind of like those little tree-type booklets that you know you get and you make a comparison based upon leaves to figure out what kind of tree you just ran into while you wait for the police officer to come arrive. Coincidentally, Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, has a blog post up the day that I'm recording this that discusses just this kind of analysis, and so I'm also posting a link to that in the show notes. The second part of your question, tracing an impactor back that may have killed the dinosaurs, comes from two blog posts that, again, I will link to in the show notes. To try to put it succinctly, the research in question was trying to figure out how long ago a particular asteroid family was created. An asteroid family is formed from the breakup of a single large asteroid, probably by collision with another one of comparable size. The fragments that break up will generally travel together along the same orbit as the original, although you will get some fragments flying off towards who knows where. But over time, these fragments will generally tend to spread out. Based on this spreading, we can model and estimate how long ago that asteroid family was formed, or how long ago the parent asteroid was destroyed or broke up. In particular, there's a family of asteroids called the Baptistina, or Baptistina, not quite sure, which, according to a study in 2007, had a dynamical breakup time that would work out well in models for sending a large fragment to Earth that would have formed the Chicxulub impact crater that led to the demise of the dinosaurs and most other forms of life on the planet. A study a few months ago put this as less likely. Again, please see the blog post that I'll link to in the show notes for more information, including actually a message from the first author of the original paper. In the end, to get back to your question, this was a completely dynamical argument based on an asteroid breakup and timing for that breakup for a fragment to get to Earth. In the end, it fits better into a, we're proposing this because it works, rather than, we have good evidence that this is what happened scenario. That's in contrast with the spectral technique for figuring out types of asteroids and pairing those with meteorites. That wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though it's probably easiest just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. 
In terms of feedback, I'm only going to go over one feedback for this episode because it's really long. I've been in a minor discussion with an astrologer on my blog, and I'll link to the comments section in the show notes for this episode. This discussion is a bit interesting, and I'll try to summarize. The person in question is named Terry McKinnell, who is a professional astrologer. He starts out on my blog by stating in part, Even if you totally disbelieve 100% of all claims regarding astrology, you will not understand it unless you have studied it, even as an academic trying to understand the methodology. So to make claims without the study is useless and ignorant. This actually doesn't make quite much sense to me, just like that statement. He's saying that unless I actually invest a bunch of time in astrology to study it, I'll not understand it. I can't understand it just by reading about it for the few hours that I've spent on it so far. That's kind of like saying that unless I go through a college class on earthquakes, I'm not going to be able to understand them even though I've read up on them via Wikipedia. Earthquakes are fairly straightforward. They are rumblings on the ground. Astrology is fairly straightforward. It claims that you can figure things out about yourself or about corporations or about whatever based on the position of the sun, moon, and planets. Not that hard. But then he goes on to say that my understanding of astrology is wrong. Quote, For the most part, both Western and Hindu astrologers are solely concerned with the relationships between the sun, moon, and planets, and the astrological signs. Fixed stars rarely enter the sphere of investigation. So you are right. Your statement of the basic claim of astrology is extremely wide of the mark. Well, my statement of what my understanding of astrology is is what I just said. This is why I found the claim particularly interesting, because I really actually have read up quite a bit on astrology. To quote everyone's favorite go-to source, Wikipedia, Astrology consists of a number of belief systems which hold that there is a relationship between the visible astronomical phenomena and events in the human world. In the West... Astrology most often consists of a system of horoscopes that claim to predict aspects of an individual's personality or life history based on the positions of the sun, moon, and planetary objects at the time of their birth. To quote my own dictionary, astrology is, quote, the study of the movements and relative positions of celestial bodies interpreted as having an influence on human affairs and the natural world. Ancient observers of the heavens developed an elaborate system of explanation based on the movements of the sun, moon, and planets through the constellations of the zodiac for predicting events and forecasting horoscopes. That's pretty much what I said. But now we get into the meat of his claim. There is absolutely no need to take into account precession in Western astrology as it uses the tropical zodiac based on the seasons and has nothing to do with the stars or constellations. I effectively restated my position to Terry at this point, and you can't really have it both ways if you claim astrology is a real science. It's like having two different ideas for how the human body works. In the end, it works one way not both. Even if they're close, one will be off from the other, just like we've built up evidence over time that Newton's theory of gravity was incomplete and needed to be modified when stuff is very massive or moving very quickly. 
astrology claims to be precise, and if it is, then one method would have won out over the other, especially as we get farther and farther away from when astrology was codified, Western astrology was codified about 2,500 years ago. You just can't have it both ways. However, Terry responded with a very lengthy reply, again linked to in the show notes, distilling the argument he said, it does not make sense to you because you have neither studied astrology nor understood its methodology. Yes, originally 2,500 years ago, the sun, moon, and planets were placed into their respective zodiacal constellations, but things evolved, just like in science, where doctors no longer refer to Galen. In the end, astrologers have to produce the goods for their clients and will always look for techniques that provide greater clarity and more information to their clients. That is what drove the evolution of astrology, just like in most fields. You may say that Western astrologers are using an archaic version of the sidereal zodiac fixed in time to around 2,000 years ago because you cannot recognize that both tropical and sidereal zodiacs have integrity, work, but are very different. You cannot replace the tropical zodiac with the sidereal zodiacs or vice versa and interpret using the same techniques. Only Hindu techniques work with the sidereal zodiac, and tropical techniques only work with the tropical zodiac. It's like two languages. They are very different, but they communicate a similar message. You should become an astrologer's, as many astrologers state your same argument that there should not be two zodiacs, only one can be correct. But then again, you have all these astrologers successfully applying their craft in the West, using the tropical zodiac and Indians successfully doing the same with the sidereal zodiac and multilingual astrologers like me that do both techniques. I use both zodiacs. They provide excellent results, but both must be interpreted very differently. It took me about 15 years to comprehend how to interpret the sidereal zodiac, whereas the tropical zodiac is far more intuitive. The problem with the tropical sidereal zodiacs is not a problem in practice. They both work. His argument seems to be basically along the lines of what I classified in episode 6 as, but it works! I think I successfully showed in episode 6 that if you strictly test astrology, don't allow astrologers to be vague, that it doesn't actually work. With that said, it's time for the puzzler, where each episode I ask a critical thinking question based loosely upon the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. Let's say that you are at Earth's magnetic north pole, where it comes to the surface. You have a compass needle suspended by a thin thread, and so it can move in any direction. How would it be aligned? And would your answer be different if you are at the magnetic south pole? And if so, how? If not, why? Congratulations to Chip on my blog for being the first to get this trick question almost correct. Chip wrote, the north end of the needle would be pointing straight down. Since it follows the magnetic field lines to indicate north anywhere on earth, it would follow those lines as they descend through the center of the earth. At the south pole, north would be straight up as the lines would come out the bottom again. Double plus good congratulations goes to Charles in San Diego on my blog for being the first to get it fully correct. He stated, 
I weakly argue that the north end of the needle would point up at the North Pole and the opposite would occur at the South Pole. The solution is Charles, though not quite for the reasons he argued. First, the basic idea is what Chips had said, that the needle would follow Earth's magnetic field lines which are perpendicular to Earth's surface at either magnetic pole. So, the needle would point straight up and down. The reason why Charles is correct on which end is up and which end is down is that the magnetic north pole of the compass needle is attracted to the magnetic south pole of Earth. So, at Earth's magnetic north pole, which is in the southern hemisphere, the south end of the compass needle would point down and north would point up. At Earth's magnetic south pole, which is in the northern hemisphere, the north end of the magnet needle would point down, while the south end would point up. This week, the main segment was on dust and rock claims, so the puzzler deals with dust. I talked about one hoax claim that states that there shouldn't be any dust on the moon at all, but there's another that states that the dust should have been so deep that the astronauts should have sunk down over their heads and drowned in it. The hoax people really need to get their story straight. Anyway, in reality we know that the depth of the lunar regolith does vary across the surface of the moon. Why isn't it uniform? After all, it's not like there's seasonal rain in some parts to wash it away. Try to figure out the answer and send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. In terms of announcements, the only announcement is that the interview with the conspiracy skeptic Carl Mamer that I said would be out last week will be later this month. I had the dates confused with the anniversary of Mike Barra's Coast to Coast interview, and so I had to flip the guests around. My United Statesian listeners will have Carl's interview to listen to just before Thanksgiving, so you'll be able to talk with friends and family about how thankful you are that there aren't Nazi bases inside of the Hollow Moon. That wraps up this topic for the 11th episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends, family, and your frenemies. 